You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? West Dead Air Night here with always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1981 classic Madman. And I'm waiting for Madman Mars. <laughs> the original title of this film, if you are curious, was Madman the. The Legend Lives. Like, Madman colon The Legend Lives. That was the original title of this picture. Um, but uh, that got changed because of two primary factors. This is fairly common knowledge, but for horror trivia buffs out there, this movie very famously uh, was made at the exact same time as the Weinstein production of The Burning. And... They were both films that featured the East Coast legend hook with a hand man. He didn't really have a hook with a hand. Cropsy. And then simultaneously there was a movie uh, called uh, Frank Sinatra, The Legend Lives. And so for those two factors alone, the, the, the title and the script got changed because I guess they had a feeling going up against the Weinstein's marketing muscle. Uh they would uh, rather the film uh, have its own identity. So it was rewritten, retitled, and you get Madman Mars. Madman Mars. I wish that it would have been called Cropsy because, like, sure, we wait years later, we get our pseudo-documentary named Cropsy, which I really enjoyed that film. Mm-hmm. But it would have been interesting to have known more about the Cropsy legend when it was like more fresh, right? Like I didn't hear about mm-hmm. Cropsy till Cropsy came out. If I'd have known this and the burning were about a, a true legend, I'd yeah. have been more interested in watching them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned about Cropsy from actually a documentary. There was a, a rather good documentary. It was. It wasn't just called Cropsy. It was. It had a longer title. I can't quite remember the name of it right now. But it was on Netflix for a while, and I remember sitting and watching. And it had a real uh, true crime vibe. And it wasn't about Cropsy was a real person. It was what what created the myth of Cropsy. Like what multiple factors. Uh, coming out of uh, the New York area could contribute to this idea that there was some sort of hidden dangerous person lurking off of one of the more rural islands that used to be, you know, used for uh, diseased people. And then there was like mental and mental asylums. And then it became like homeless shanty towns and all these things that, that sort of surround the New York City area, and that's where Cropsy comes from, and it, and it spreads. It's all I think there's Cropsy stories in, like in New Jersey and uh, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, that's that's what that mm-hmm. is. But um, do we have any? Do we have any Ontario? Like the guy had a hook for a hand, or he 
was missing an eye and he like do we have any of those like dr- like bushmen dragging you into the wood legend stories not the bone setter not really like there is that serial killer that used to lure strippers into his plane and fly them into alaska and kill them and hunt them but i mean that's I, I not remember, really yeah, uh urban legend yeah, yeah, no, that's like, a, that's, that's very, not a, that's not an real. urban legend. That's a dude that did that. I, it was like, yeah, right. I, I was like, I know that Ontario and and stuff has has its fair share of mysterious killings, but I wonder if there was like some kind of boogeyman that uh, that Ontario might have. We might have to start a legend of our our own. When I was um, young, about 10 or 12 years old, somewhere in there, uh, there was two small ones. And one was, there was a sort of like abandoned rail car graveyard in this old sand pit near mm-hmm. where I lived. And it was fun to go in and like scout around these old abandoned rail cars. And they were half full of garbage and transients and teens hung out there. And who knows what actually went on there or why they were there. But the legend was that... They were, it was populated by a a little village of hobos. And the ringleader was one named Boxcar Willie. (laughs) We were told this by like a 16 year old who definitely made it up on the fly. Like looking back, (laughs) I could tell they made it up on the fly. (laughs) But we at like 10 or 12 years old were very scared to go there. But I think it was just to keep us away from their hangout spot. (laughs) This 16 year old. Just lighting a cigarette, like, Boxcar Willie? Well, that's a name I've not heard in, oh, 50 years. <laughs> that's what it was like. There was apparently another one, though. Um, and this one, found, this this is a sort of thing of, of urban legend where it, and that was the problem with Cropsy, too, is that they couldn't pinpoint if this was really a real thing because it's an urban legend that was taking place in so many areas and so many um like where he actually resided or where he actually prayed sort of became like uh, intangible and like it shifted so there's apparently a guy that hacked his wife to bits with an axe and then for days he was chopping wood in the forest and no one really realized that he had killed his wife for days and days until they went out because he had wasn't coming back from the bush and they went out to find him because they could hear him chopping in the woods. So they followed the sound of him felling trees. And they started finding parts of her body. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. So apparently on dark nights, if you're walking in this forest alone, you can hear someone chopping wood deep in the woods. And it's him, the ghost of the man that chopped his wife up and went berserk. There was a name for him. I just don't remember what it was. But again, I don't know if it's some 16 year old told me that story. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. But I mean, that is the setting. That is that is the mentality we have to get into because we are going to talk about um, the film Madman. But what is this movie even about anyways, Lids? This movie is about... The tree climbing hillbilly known as Madman, the Macabre Marksman Mars. That was what his real name was because he was a rootin' tootin' cowboy shootin' down home fella until he got yeah. all grunty and lost his boots. 
He is basically living creepypasta, Wes. <laughs> he is a living creepypasta. I think that um, what I love most about Mad Men is um, it is a slasher that is not entirely unique. It definitely borrows a lot from other slashers, although not as much as people might think because... Oh, borrows. That's polite of you because so many people would use a much heavier term and not borrows at all. They would say steals, rips off. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like the the, the thing that it'd be the most similar to at this point would be something obviously like the burning. The films were couldn't be borrowed because they were both basically pulling from the same legend. Friday the 13th was still in its infancy. The first one uh, and the second one might, the second one might have been out by the time that this one aired um, or aired, but was released. And um, I mean, obviously there was like stuff like Halloween, but like really like a prey had been released the prey. Sorry. Um, so like, woodsy camping slashers definitely were out and the slasher movement was in in full swing bloody swing at that but um madman definitely has this aura of well you have tried the best now let's try the rest but the rest (laughs) isn't that bad because I remember the first time I saw it and I was like, you know what? Pretty good. Pretty fucking good. Pretty good and pretty gushy. And it's like maybe cuts away here and there, but it's got some really ingenious kills and it's got uh, a really a, a fascinating beginning. I don't think any slasher movie starts out with quite that sort of lore. I mean, the only other thing that comes to mind is the beginning of the fog, perhaps, but that's not the same because it's not really Mm -hmm. telling you the story that's about to happen. And Mm -hmm. it seems like a weird tactic, but it sets you up nicely, I think, in Mm -hmm. that campfire story and now a day's kind of creepypasta Mm -hmm. way of thinking of this lore. Um, it does have its two. It does have its campy things that take you out of all that, though, because while it has some pretty interesting, believable characters, more so than the typical camp counselors, mm-hmm. uh, it does have like the the loping, romping Madman Mars when he's all like running through the the moonlight forest and he yeah. looks like like happy, like a romping goblin or something. <laughs> He is very uh, bestial in certain areas, but the goblin is really the right thing to call him. Sometimes it's hard to even say if they could decide whether they were going with giant inarticulate bushman or like monster. It's crazy because part of his legend is not like he was some kind of, you know, simple-minded, deformed person wandering in the woods. It's not like a Hills Have Eyes, or I know I keep referencing uh, uh, Prey for some reason. It's just stuck in my head because there's like a, such a similar aesthetic to this movie as that one. But like, um, I, I was, I, like, 
he was like a, basically a family man. He sounded abusive, but like he was like, I have two kids. We have a house. I probably have a job. I go to the bar. Like I, I, I am. I am. Yeah, they a, never said that he's covered in fur. No, and they never said that he has like razor claws. In the sort of flashback-ish sort of scene where they're setting up the story, and mind you, what the story that our favorite character TP is telling around the campfire when he's setting the scene and telling us about Madman Mars, mm. he doesn't say, yeah, like you said, he has razor claws, uh, but he's wearing boots and things like that. And the house mm. it looks clean from the flashes that we're getting. Mm-hmm. So the story that is baked within TP's imagination, I suppose, because that's where these flashes would basically be coming from, mm-hmm. is that this was, yes, a family man and not much different than maybe mm. the Amityville murders or something like that. And Amity is a really fucking good call, Lids, because that sequence where... um So T... So, for clarification, TP does tell a weird ghost story in the tune of the Madman Mars theme. So the older guy, Max, is uh, who I guess is like running the whole camp area. He's the one that sits down and tells the creepy tale, like, gather around and let me tell you about Madman Mars. And, you know, don't say his name too loud like it's fucking Voldemort. That whole sequence, when he's describing it, it reminds me so much of the opening sequence of the Amityville horror because uh, it, it's like going to the bedrooms. I mean, it's not a it's not a gun, but it's essentially the same scene. Yep, it totally is. It totally is, and it leaves you with the same sort of feeling of that. No matter what, something before there was cursed and it is definitely even more cursed now mm. because we have that overwhelming feeling about Amityville more first told the story of that house and without even knowing some of the stuff that did or didn't go on at thereafter we would be assuming that this house is cursed and mm-hmm. to find out that it's just behind you because they're sitting a stone's <laughs> throw away quite literally No pun intended. There's a Lovecraft story uh, that's very, very similar where they're talking about the house that is haunted that Mm -hmm. um, had in in this particular story, the face of a a person that an invalid that had looked out of the window so long that their face was imprinted on the glass. And they they're talking about the house, these two gentlemen in a graveyard. And one of them says, oh, I wish I could see a house like this. And he said, you could if you turned around. So it reminded me very, very much of that Lovecraft story, too. So it's just a very close campfire story that is pulling on so many horror tropes. And it may seem simplistic to some viewers at first glance or those that are looking for the sort of punch that something like Friday the 13th has or something with a higher... Uh, production value perhaps they're looking for that sort of aesthetic and that sort of polish they may Mm. not find that here but they're finding a very well crafted story i think i agree and to and to think this is um this was the rewrite so it, it it shows you the benefits of drafts because the most affecting part of the story was the fact that they had to go back to the drawing board and craft a new story that wasn't Cropsy. And so everything about him being a farmer, killing his family, uh, being lynched uh, by uh, by the townsfolk, 
uh, having his nose bitten off, all of this stuff and and all that um, dialogue being expertly delivered, uh, like it really hooks you in. Um, you know, I got to watch this with a, with a first timer, uh, but while we were getting ready for the show, and uh, they were they were pulled in, they were hooked on the the and and it's that opening ten to fifteen minutes of the movie that really really sinks its claws into you it's dirty bushman claws because like a lot of other campfire stories the best thing about this movie is it stays within the realm of the narrative it's not like the story the legend of the campfire is to let you know why the teens are going to get killed by Jason Voorhees or going to let you know, uh, you know, uh, in the burning, it's not even really a campfire story. It's a literal thing that happened. And one person goes Mm -hmm. back to the camp after this guy has recovered and then the guy wants his revenge. This is mythic. This is folklore. This, and it carries that idea from... The first reel of the film to the last reel where Richie, the person who instigated anything by calling out Madman Mars's name in defiance and throwing a rock at the house. He wasn't the one that was punished. He was the one that had to be punished by other people dying. And then the legend lives. They end with the song. So it's, it's just I really love how they frame this story. Mm-hmm. You have to really take a, a step back and, and check your privilege, as it were, <laughs> as far as high production value and uh, perfect acting and things like that. And um, really let those the, the meat hooks sink into you. Like We actually get to see someone <laughs> impaled by a meat hook. What, what more do you want, man? What more do you want? But uh, yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I wish they wouldn't have had to pull the rug out from under themselves the Cropsey story so much because they had such an interesting cast for that because all these kids sound straight out of the out of the pine barrens they're all jersey kids it sounds like it they do they and they all oddly look similar they all look like they're related <laughs> like they like well except like, for jan claire yes yeah, she looks very different, and she went on to uh, quite the career in being in like a Star Trek show, and now quite a long-lived career in Star Trek. And um, I can't. Who, who plays Betsy? She was in Dawn of the Dead. Galen Ross. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, but it is really cool. I, every aside from her, she had done uh, Dawn of the Dead a couple of years before this, but uh, everyone else, this was their first picture. So um, it is filled with a lot of no names, but um, the story is predicated on the campfire story. And then this guy, Richie, who, as they're walking back from the, from this campfire, which I can't decide or the movie can't decide whether this is like a two hour trek back to their campsite, or if it's like a, a 10 minute walk still on the property. But he goes off in search of, well, he sees Matt, this 400-pound man in the trees. <laughs> he looks he looks quite stealthy up in the tree like that, though, doesn't he? I mean, 
That is a terrifying scene. And it was that scene that made me think, is this going to be my next beloved B gem like pieces where Mm -hmm. there's definitely huge cult following for that movie as well. So Mm -hmm. I know I'm not the only one, but there's things about that movie that just get seared into your brain. And that scene, it definitely sounds to me like that's the scene that would be seared into the brain of many people. And it's made its way into some of the one sheets and some of the art that was made afterward. But it is a terrifying look for madman mars we get to see all sorts of different angles of him later and his we get to really drink in how big this guy really is but when he's up in that tree he looks like something from wrong turn and you know how much i love that movie yes yes i actually had forgotten that this might um this this might tickle your fancy in the 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 hillbilly horror aspect of it all because uh, I had really forgotten that aspect of it, that he was a farmer and that it's really like a he's a very backwoodsy overall big bushy beard type guy. And once I was rewatching the movie for the show and I was like, oh, man, Lydia's that I was like, I'm not I don't know if she's going to like it, but I definitely know she's going to like the look of this guy. So the look of the guy and it's it's his house. His house is really what yeah. what sells me entirely because that looks like so much like my grandmother's house if it had gone to pot entirely. Mm-hmm. So I think that really I like that and I I do like the grounds of the house itself. Like when he goes lop loping off across the field and stuff and just the, the scrub brush in between trails and clearings and trees. Um, but it is awkward in that. He can get from the campfire to his house or to the camp to his house within a few strides, it seems. But everyone else is wandering around the bush for hours looking for one another. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they say later on in the film that, oh, you know, Richie's lost and, you know, we've lost people out here before. It can take like three hours. Someone takes a left when they're supposed to take a right go off the trail but i'm like off the trail how far could this possibly be like i get the sense sometimes when they're just like oh i'm gonna go check the campfire and see if we can find richie oh here we are now like in a lot of a lot of time can pass in between those editing but it definitely feels as though that the campfire is still on the property but yes yet they can't seem to find anybody and (laughs) richie like a babe in the woods just can't fucking find anything. But Madman Mars also can't really find him. They seem to just be narrowly missing each other. Now, maybe he has a little bit of that madman gene within him, too. And Richie seems to be able to sneak around in the bush soundlessly. Although we can hear every snap of every twig that he makes. But he seems to be able to elude Madman Mars for whatever crazy reason. It it, uh, it it does stretch the, the level of believability, but um, I could tell you what doesn't stretch the believability. How weird these fucking college kids slash adults are, because holy fuck, are they weird. <laughs> I was just going to ask you, do they throw a line out here at all to describe why there's no children at this fucking camp? There's like three kids. The rest are like grown ass teenagers and grown ass adults. What one one of the kids literally is charged later with driving a bus. So I I really don't know. It's apparently um a camp for the gifted. So they're not 
it's it's like some kind of retreat weekend retreat i guess these kids or these counselors or whatever they are because it's not even like summer it's the week it's like the the week before thanksgiving so like they're all going to this camp in if since it's the united states in late november <laughs> that does not sound fun at all because it gets pretty damn chilly. I mean, at least it is a full functioning camp with full on cabins and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it you could probably get fairly warm and cozy. I do enjoy that there's no set shower scenes in this. It doesn't have as much of that sexy vibe as Friday the 13th. True, but I mean, there is an extended um, hot tub scene that goes on and on. And on. And around. And around. around. Uh, they, I, I was... It's like they're fucking... Like, like, uh... Like, uh, TP is peacocking, literally. Like, it's like he's got his plumage out and he's, like, circling his his pr- 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 prospective uh, mate. And he's just like... Because they just circle around and around. And all to this original song... By the way, that was made for the movie that was sung by um, the producer whose name is escaping me. He's also the person that does the Madman Mars song. He did the music for this uh, production. And it's just like, it kind of reminds me, there was a movie that I saw years ago in one of my, uh, me and my old roommates, uh, famous bad movie Thanksgivings that we used to watch. And there was also a, a sex scene in a hot tub in which the song that was playing during this hot tub sex scene was actually sung by the actor that's participating in the sex scene. So it was fucking weird. Could you, <laughs> could you imagine? It's almost like Tommy Wiseau level of stupidity. <laughs> could you imagine anything less sexy than like, ah, let me uh, get us all in the mood. And then I turned on my podcast for my lovemaking. <laughs> yeah that would be just vile i mean really uh the music in this is something that takes me out of it from time to time some of the sounds but i have the same sort of reaction to the goblin the the venerated and amazing goblin soundtrack and score for suspiria there's just some of the sounds are are mixed too loud and it's just too otherworldly and it doesn't fit do you know the weirdest thing that I notice about this movie uh, that um, the, the the person watching with it with me also noticed, or and uh, is that it seems as though the characters, the noise they hear is the synth track starting. So I just kept, <laughs> I, so I just kept thinking. That Madman Mars was standing there with like a fucking Casio keyboard, just like, because they seem to be reacting to that noise. It's true. It's true. It it that makes a lot of sense now, and that's why it mostly didn't sit well with me. Aside from being a little too loud and just too ethereal for something that is so down home, it's a very down home. St- story really thunder cracking would have fit a lot better actually but hey whatever it was 1981 yeah they're like listen we got the keyboard we're using the keyboard oh they probably had a full-on waterphone moog setup they probably had all sorts of 
old-fashioned analog synths. They probably had a room, a computer the size of like a bus running the music <laughs> for this thing. Probably, probably. Um, when Richie goes missing and Betsy and TP, who, but I mean, we, we, we commented on the belt buckle. I really want to talk about the belt buckle again because I, I can't get over the fact that TP has a novelty belt buckle with his fucking name on the front of it. And the camera lingers on him taking his belt off for what feels like 45 minutes. And I just, it, we keep seeing the belt buckle. Like it's a character in this fucking movie. And again. It is like it's a character. Yeah. And again, I wonder, like, like imagine if you were to about to begin your lovemaking and then someone takes off their shirt and their belt buckle. And my belt buckle just says Wes on it. Just in case you forgot. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? And I'm curious. I do want to watch this again. Not for all of the other wonderful reasons I'd want to watch Madman again. But I really want to zoom in on TP's belt buckle to see if it isn't actually an F. Because the guy that played to TP, his name is Tony Fish. Of all the awesome names that you could ever have. Yeah. So... I wonder if it's an F for Tony Fish. Oh. <laughs> um, when, when Richie evokes the rage, the classic, like, I ain't afraid of no ghost and throws his rock. The first one to die is a nonverbal alcoholic named Dippy. <laughs> <laughs> named Dippy. Oh my god. Isn't he just a real piece of work? <laughs> oh, it's just like, what is this guy? But what I do love about this sequence with Dippy is A, that's such a first draft. Like, it was like when I was playing D and D, I was DMing a campaign one time, and uh I I had this character that was just like sweeping the floor and they were just like, what's and someone was like, what's this guy's name? And I'm like, dusty. Cause <laughs> and, and it was just like, <laughs> dusty something that the I floor thought sweeper. Of. Yeah, exactly. Old dusty. <laughs> that character got killed by the way, but, um, old dusty, the floor sweeper, but that's what Dippy seems like. We're like, you're sitting there typing over a script and you're just like, here's a guy that has no lines that I just need to get killed. Dippy. They probably just made them laugh. Uh, this gives you a good idea, though, of another, A, the level of gore that this film is going to have, and B, the uh, level of um, uh, jump scares that they're going to have. Because this jump scare is fucking great. It's well made. Yeah. And it, it to me, I, I was watching it, and I was like, this reminds me of the the very excellent jump scare. I mean, it was in the trailer, so it kind of got spoiled, but like of uh, Halloween 2018, where the door won't close and then you open the door and Michael Myers was right there. Um, I love Dippy turning the corner, turning on the light, and you get a glimpse, almost like Leatherface. Just a glimpse mm -hmm. in him fully lit. The Leatherface um, parallel is what this scene reminded me of most of, too. And it mm -hmm. seemed to have that sort of urgency and abruptness of the first kill in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. 
Yeah, there's a lot of now because you know you mentioned the uh, the hook, and I was like, oh man, yeah, like there's actually this movie's more explicit with that hook scene than Texas Chainsaw even was, but um. Dippy gets his throat torn out, and it is wet. It is red. Yeah. It is violent. Made me think, um, at first, that there was an auteur uh, FX specialist behind the scenes here, and there's not. Nope. Not at all. Nope. You would think, oh, this person's gonna, you know, go on to become like, you know, like a, like an early uh, fucking Tom Savini or something like that. Like somebody... Who is who's just cutting their teeth in this industry and that's going to become huge? Nope, it was just people with a pretty good sense and a pretty good eye, and someone was just like, "Yeah, this looks this looks authentic. This looks authentic." Like they didn't have a lot of money and they didn't really have a lot of time, but they were just, you know, doing the best with what they had. And and I I genuinely think that like what impresses me the most about this film over and over again is the fact that like for you know, for all intents and purposes, they were all amateurs. I mean, they did have some veteran actors here and there, but in terms of everything, they were just flying by the seat of their pants and they created something that people with way more money and way more experience don't do a good a job at, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. I mean, n- no one really went on to um, do any more horror the few that did go on, I mean, Galen Ross did go on to do other films, but like no one else, especially the people that gave a really, really strong performances, mm-hmm. went on to, to do any horror or anything else. Because I don't see any like links highlighted in their Wikipedia entries or Internet Movie Database is pretty sparse. Yeah. And the filmmaker, I believe it's the original director, is looking at revamping this. About two years ago, there was a script done up uh, of a remake with a few tweaks here and there to the story uh, and a few modernizations here and there but otherwise a, a in the flesh remake of this film and that's the only real blip i had ever heard of this oh i didn't even hear that yeah that's interesting i wonder i don't know if it's still being shelved like i don't know if this is like a savini's nightmare city kind of situation where people talk around it and toss it around every so many years or if this is a bona fide project that is on the back burner who knows especially nowadays like who knows what's happening with any project now speaking of on the back burner things are about to get a little hot because as we know camp counselors at night Wes, don't only get naked. They also split up. (laughs) They they tend to fucking split up. Max has gone into town to go play Mm -hmm. cards and pick up some things in the store at I don't know what time at night because some scenes seem to be shot day for night and some Mm -hmm. scenes are shot what seems like sunset. Some things seem to be the dead of night. So it's really hard to tell what time it is even. They sent all the kids to bed with quotes around it because the kids are up waiting for Richie to come back because Richie's technically one of the kids. And the counselors aren't that concerned. They're going to go and hang out in their tents and have hot tub parties or whatever the hell they're doing, right? The only people that seem very concerned are the fucking kids that are supposed to be asleep. Yeah, the, the the one thing I'll say about uh, Max, Max, the, the 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 leader of the pack, is that 
I was um, actually discussing uh, with my girlfriend. Uh, who do you think? Like, who do you think's the better uh, head of the counselor, uh, Mister Christie, for Friday the Thirteenth, or Max? And we both agreed, Max. Max said, "I'm going into town to play some cards, and that's going to be it." Christy, if you remember, says he's going to go grab some lunch and he'll be back uh, before it gets dark. And not only does he not even like like Christy's at that diner for like what feels like 15 hours because he has no intent of ever going back. And then he's basically making fun of the kids. And Max is just like, yeah, I'm going to go play some cards. Hey, you know all that beer you got? Save me a beer. So I'm down with Max. He's a very chill dude, but he is very absentee. And... When uh, TP goes to look for Richie, Betsy <laughs> sees Madman Mars, but like, I guess just a glimpse of him. But like, when you look at how it was filmed, I was like, that's not a glimpse. You definitely saw a giant man. And she's like, oh, <laughs> it's it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. Go on. Go on without me. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. And she does have that sort of like. Let's scare Jessica to death. Something that came up previously yeah. comes up again. It's the whole, mm. am I crazy? I must be crazy because I'm a mm. woman, right? So my vagina is making me see things. Uh, mm. She definitely blames herself for having seen what couldn't have been a giant man menacing in the dark and lurking and watching them. Yeah. Even though it's clear as day, it was a very giant man. He's like 450 pounds. He's like six foot 11. It's crazy. This dude's huge. But um, the death scene of TP, I'm going to say, I may never admit this again. It is genuinely upsetting because they do such a good job with the makeup in this scene. So what ends up happening is TP gets lynched, essentially, not unlike um, Madman Mars was. He, he actually creates like kind of an elaborate police system, but he is an expert. And mm-hmm. the, the acting from TP, where his eyes are rolling back in his head, it's really gross to look at. And it's not gory, but it looks very authentic. Like his head is like purple. His head is purple. And I think the last time I heard you say that a death very similar to this was as disturbing. And it's also the length of time it goes on for, which is very realistic is in dream home, the strangling scene at the beginning of that film. Uh, It goes on for a very long time. It's very authentic. And the makeup even in that though, is not quite as good as this because this to the point where i thought is this just such a gutsy robust actor that he said yes hang me (laughs) i'm down with that i my face i do it all the time i do i'm I'm one of those guys you know hangs in my closet and wax off i'm used to this um or is it just such good makeup that it's that believable it's a very authentic scene and I really like, like I do with any strangling or, or hanging scenes, when he gets a chance to save himself and we really think he's going to make it. 
And yeah. he even has like a false start at that. So he, the audience is being toyed with here, unfortunately, but it works to such great effect. So it's all these things together that we already know the story. So we know how this is going to end. We know that TP is fairly determined and he's a very tough guy and he's trying to save himself and he's trying very hard. So we're in his corner for that. But we're also pretty convinced he's not going to make it because of the way he's reacting to this being hung oh it's just a horrible horrible scene and Mm -hmm. it yeah that when he finally does uh bite the dust as it were it's just as gross because that horrible cracking sound of someone dropping dead weight on too short of a noose yeah it was uh when he was hung the first time he was hung in such a way you know like hanging as you very well know but maybe the audience doesn't know it was considered like pretty humane because typically speaking people's necks would break when they dropped so abruptly but yeah the long drop instead of the struggle of that short rope yeah that was what we got to see we got to see both kinds of hangings there basically We, we really did fucking poor tp cursed by his own hubris his vanity belt buckle was what Madman Mars pulled on to break his neck. Unreal, huh? Go figure. <laughs> the one thing that this sets up, not only is one of our favorite characters, our loudmouth TP done, uh, we know that Betsy's already worried about him, and she's definitely mm-hmm. going to be either going out or sending someone out very, very mm-hmm. soon. So we know that this body is going to get discovered. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is like oh, yeah. horror porn here, man. <laughs> It really is. And in, in, a, in a funny way, like uh, Madman Mars uh, defies expectation that we have of slashers. Remember, the rules of slashers hadn't really been cemented the way that we think of it now. He doesn't arrange bodies. They literally find the bodies where they lay. He doesn't, like when he leaves them, because he also has his like, body basement that he likes to put stuff in but most of the time yeah his body basement is something different and that's just um that's more of a modus operandi of uh almost like an an animal in one sense Mm -hmm. and we we've talked about how how killers can sometimes be like beasts in that way and Mm -hmm. have things in their den or Mm -hmm. it's also just um like not for shock factor but like sort of wanting to keep those dead bodies close like the family that he had lost, right? So mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to replace or refresh those corpses in a manner of speaking. So that's yeah. almost like a whole different mindset. The bodies in the forest are just like detritus. He's just leaving them around. So it's not yeah. necessarily as fun as our friend Jason Voorhees, who sets bodies <laughs> up to be props. Yeah, he's like he he uses it to like funnel people into areas that he wants to do his his uh, Jason Voorhees stuff too. Like even the best uh, body discovery, which I'm not going to spoil yet, but it's um, like near the end scene where they're wrestling around trying to drive out of there and stuff like that, and there is a a body or body part that's discovered. It's not set up. That is just mm-hmm. how that happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do I do really love that. And you're right. These rules weren't cemented. Oddly enough, this rule wasn't followed as often as the let's pose the corpses in sort of like a, an offensive or scandalous way. Mm-hmm. Or a fun way where they'll fall out of a, car, a cupboard and scare people. 
uh, I always think about that scene in Slumber Party Massacre where where the the fridge door won't close because there's the body in it. <laughs> we do get some fridge scene here. We get a lot of chases too, and that's something that I really do like for someone who's as big and is going back and forth between the farmhouse and the camp so often. We get a lot of very tense chase scenes once he once all bets are off and he's chasing these teens around with abandon. Yeah, there's a one of my particular favorite uh, death scenes coming up is the character of Stacy. Stacy is, for lack of a of, of like a really solid background for too many of the characters, she seems to be Betsy's best friend or at least the best friend for the summer. Um, somebody who would have gotten close or, or whatever during their trip when she goes out looking uh, and she takes the, the their big yellow truck out she eventually has car trouble um, and this is where madman Mars he's such he's such a big dude that you think that they would stick to I'm a big hulking brute I use brute strength to do stuff but this guy is jumping around and running and cutting through trees and like a fucking kangaroo just jumps on the front of the car and decapitates her head. Yeah, and this is also like just to play up his fleet footedness and his lithe monkey like <laughs> behaviors. He jumps up on top of the truck without being noticed. And he is a yeah. he is a big fucking dude. You're not kidding with his like six foot eleven, four hundred and fifty pounds. Somehow he clambers up or, or leaps up or simply appears on top yeah. of the truck and watches her work on the truck for a few minutes for full effect because he wants to cut her head off at a good spot. Because if that the if he jumped down on the hood of the the truck, he, he would hurt he would hurt her very very bad. But he might not chop her head off. So he waits no. like very very calculated. This gigantic bushman <laughs> and. We're treated to um, some more scenes. You have so many uh, instances of like, because uh, like there's there's quite a few actual kills in this movie because there's actually quite a few adult slash counselors. Um, but again, it's all about how can you split them up further because they are just sort of like lying in a living room together, like heads all adjacent to each other, like. Asking, like, do you think stars know they're stars? Or whatever the fuck shit they say. But <laughs> one of them... That sounds about right to me. Especially, like, Betsy's character looks very, very hippy-dippy. And to the point that before Stacy bites it, or gets bit, or whatever, mm-hmm. she hustles uh, Betsy into the office. And is like, you just stay here, because you're a girl, and I'm a girl, but I'm a girl of action. And I'm going to go <laughs> and save the day with a flashlight. But you're not that type. So you just stay yeah. here, and Betsy's like, "Yeah, I suppose you're right." Yeah, she's 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 that. Um, she's like, "Oh, I'm not like other girls. I'm a cool girl. You're like other girls. I'm not like other girls. Remember that, cool girl." Anyway, see you later. Can't you see how? <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, she. Uh, there's a really awkward scene. The blonde guy whose name I I can never fucking remember. Uh, but there's this baffling fucking scene, baffling scene that he is involved with where he pulls out a knife and is talking about 
killing people and 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 like it's almost like do you think that they were trying to go for a red herring like maybe he's madman mars it doesn't make any sense we've already seen madman mars kill people and it's not this guy so why is he what is the purpose of this scene i thought it was just a real holden caulfield dark night of the soul moment where he's like this is my uh people hunting hat you know this is <laughs> you aren't you scared of me you never know what anyone's gonna do i don't know myself and then you realize that all of them have knives basically so yeah. it is kind of like that weird none of us can be trusted sort of moment it does not work though you're right it is a very awkward scene it has no place it makes no sense and i can't remember this guy's name either but i think of him as freddy from scooby-doo because he looks kind of he- like he Freddy. fucking he does fucking look like a Freddy from Scooby Doo, and thank you, not me, for bringing back a Scooby Doo reference to this show because my <laughs> god, it's been a while. But um, the, the, it, it's to me, it's almost like the scene in Friday the Thirteenth uh, where Bill kills the snake, and then he's like, sort of looks menacingly, has the machete, and like that was that was like Sean Cunningham being like, maybe he's the killer, but that kind of works because. It's a mystery, but you're right. That's a good mm-hmm. call. It probably is that like dark night of the soul imp of the perverse like type shit where he's, um, where he's going for that. But it's just, when you talk about first time actors, I feel like that scene was probably just a bit too much for him because it doesn't It was a bit off. much. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't uh, really work. And I don't think it translates either because I don't know about you, but I think that when people are younger or when people are more stoned, perhaps, or when people were just coming off of the 70s, they had more conversations like that at night around campfires or giant bowls of pudding or whatever the fuck these people are doing (laughs) in the communal pudding bowl area because we don't do communal (laughs) bowls of pudding anymore. Do we? And we don't talk about the dark night of the soul with our stoned and drunk friends uh, at camp that we all work with. Like, it's just very strange scene entirely. And always, like, uh, and, and you can't really get a sense of, like, are these people friends or are they not? Because, like, they're always talking about, like, when we get back to the city or when we get back to the city. So it's like, do you all live in the same place? Like, I'm confused. Yeah, and when I went to, um, I was camp counselor for a little bit, and I was date camp counselor, so I got to go home at night. Yeah, and like, we took training, though, with the, with all the camp counselors for the YMCA, even though we weren't, we were only loosely affiliated with the YMCA, but their counselors do stay uh, at long-term stays. And we had a few other counselors that were for, um sort of like corrections institutions Mm -hmm. so they stayed out for up to 40 or 50 days or something like that in the bush so when going back to town was was a very big thing that was a very big thing so they were very very close friends some of them were roommates in town there were some of them that were roommates that didn't work at the camp at the same time so when one was at home the other was at the camp and then they'd switch basically uh, because a lot of the times the kids are out at the camp a lot longer than the counselors are and the counselors will switch off depending. So like I, I could totally get this. Like when we go back to town, TP says, you're going to forget all about me talking about Betsy yeah. because it's sort of like that. Um, what do you call that? The December, May 
relationship where people hook up mm-hmm. for the winter. I had someone yeah. explain that to me once and I didn't I'd never encountered that necessarily, but she often looked for a mate <laughs> for a December May and that's what this is like the opposite of that. They would meet up at camp much like kids meet up at camp and have little flings, you know, Bible camp. I tended to like get dumped just before winter. So like I would have a lot of summer relationships and then by november i would get dumped because i can remember a lot of decembers where i'm like ugh, now i'm single again good lord yeah yeah that makes some sense they must have been looking for their december may elsewhere it's fine it saves me a christmas gift oh totally it seems to me that ellie and her boyfriend in this film though were like a constant couple they seem to have been together Mm. for quite some time and people regarded them as such and treated them almost as if they Mm. were a married couple and even like Stacy going to interrupt them while they were doing their thing. She like apologizes like it's a regular thing. So it's not like they were a fling and they were definitely, it was advertised as such where Betsy and TP are kind of keeping their relationship on the down low until they're having arguments and stuff like that. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. they weren't a couple necessarily, but Ellie and her boyfriend were. So they must know each other outside of this camp situation. They must. Um, and yeah, Ellie and uh, I think her, the, the, our mustachioed uh, vest-wearing man is named Bill, I believe. Um, Bill. Bill of the vest. Bill with the vest. A solid investment. <laughs> they are off and they actually go to look for pairs. Uh, go, go look for Stacy and uh, Richie and now TP. Every, like, basically everyone that goes off into the woods fucking goes missing. And this is probably the most hilarious kills, in my opinion, because this starts a sequence that is very, um, when people are talking about characters being stupid in horror movies, this is the type of stuff that they're talking about. Do you mean the, the running around the truck like it's a fire drill? And in one door and around the other and looking for the dead body and like seeing the truck and being like, oh, well, she, I guess she's in the bush. We'll have to walk around the truck the other way and avoid the giant blood stain that would let us know what's going on here. Yeah, yes, exactly that. Because it's like when when uh, Ellie sees, literally sees Madman Mars himself. Fully lit. Yeah. Fully like, lit she, in a spot that looks like they took hedge trimmers and cut a circle out of the hedge just for him to stand there like he's framed. Yeah. And she she sees him and then she sees him down by the truck and then she goes to run to Bill and she's like, oh, I saw something. And Bill's just like, no, you didn't. And then she's like, they go back there and yep, everything's fine. And then they literally walk around the truck. It's a bright yellow truck. With an even brighter red blood stain all over the front of it, and they walk around the circumference of the truck in such a way that they would never see the front of the truck. And they're just like, "Yep, everything's fine." And then they get in the truck, and then the car won't turn over, and it's because it's got uh, a cute case of head in the engine. <laughs> 
which is awesome, especially when he goes out and lifts the hood and is like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Stay in the truck. Stay in the truck. And she's like, what? Get out of the truck, basically. And comes around <laughs> and sees her friend's head. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's almost as good as like the other two scenes where Dave finds TP's body hanging in the forest and bumps into his legs that are dangling. And then later on, we have a discovery of Dave's body, which has been decapitated hilariously. But the body is sitting with its legs over a log. So it looks like he might have been taking a poo and passed out or got tired when he sat down and laid back. And then when someone lifts his body forward, they get this headless torso mm. lovely stuff it's it's uh it is really really cool i like you know, the gore effects on that are actually really nice too and um the when uh bill gets pulled out of the car and the car and the uh, or the truck rather gently careens into a tree ellie goes fucking flying out of the passenger door <laughs> which almost like she's spring-loaded it's hilarious now her yeah. chase scene she gets probably the scream queen crown here in this film like yeah. you would assume that it's maybe betsy just because of the nature of her character but it's really ellie that sings here no pun intended because she has a glorious scream. She gets face-to-face yeah. with Mad Men Mars on numerous occasions. And she's mm. wily. So she it does have the wherewithal to sneak and hide quietly. And she doesn't do that weird whimpering thing that people do when they're hiding in horror movies. She actually hides very effectively. Yeah. And she also is... Um, her, her screaming and crying is really weird. Because it's a lot of like silent, open mouth can't really find the breath or the sound to come out type looking of terror. That's kind of how she does it. And then when she does scream, it's like ear piercing, perfectly high note, glass shattering scream. But she gets back to the camp through the bush and eludes Man Man Mars for the time being and is looking all over for somewhere to hide. And she tears everything out of the fridge and jumps in the fridge and hides. While, of all places while madman mars is literally like 10 feet away like she's just like could you imagine going to your refrigerator right now pulling the door open literally pulling the shelving out of your fridge with all the food in it going to the fridge and then suspecting that like chris sitting in the living room wouldn't know what you were doing <laughs> no i don't i wouldn't be able to pull that off no and and granted there's very few things in this fridge at this camp um, but they're still on the floor. They're all over the floor. You can hear what she's doing. Yeah. And they're, the stuff is all over the floor. I guess Mad Men Mars doesn't un- understand what a fridge is or how one operates, perhaps. But <laughs> she is like, she doesn't spend that much time in there either because he trashes the place yeah. with her in the fridge. And seconds later, she's brave enough to emerge. Yeah. This sequence is, uh, you really brought up a good point. Um, this sequence really is the most slashery of the sequences. And you'd think that scenes like this would be left to the final girl. But first of all, this is not a final girl movie. Second of all, the, our protagonist is doesn't have a chase sequence that goes on this long. And you bringing that up is really making me marinate on that that's very interesting isn't it it really is because like you said the rules weren't written and 
this particular thing that usually does belong to the final girl where she gets her comeuppance. They, they shove that in our face, if it was a rule. And they also shove the final girl in our face entirely, too, which is great. And that's what makes it a, such a satisfying movie, I believe, mm-hmm. because despite Mad Men Mars, his, his physique being absolutely otherworldly and troll-like and not human at all, the way that he's behaving as a killer is very human mm-hmm. because he's not being tricked. He's not allowing himself to be necessarily duped. He's not uh, letting his emotions get the better of him. Or any of those mm. fun tricks that usually are our outs when it comes to serial killer slashers. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, <laughs> by the way, let me ask you this. Is Ellie dead when Betsy shoots her with the gun? Or is that Madman Mars throwing her body up against the window? Like, it, or, or is she alive? Well, I didn't think she was dead. Yeah, I know that's a really good question. I, 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 I thought she was very alive. Me too. I think that she... Because Ellie gets an axe to the chest, neck area, and you presumably she's dead. But then when Betsy is in stock mode, like, I need to know what's going on. I'm going to grab a gun. I've called Max. Get back from playing your fucking card games and get here because we need help. I need to get the kids. Betsy... Or, sorry, Ellie... Goes up against the window and 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 th- they do not shy away from this shot. This is graphic, like this is like fucking maniac levels. Well, maybe not a head explosion, but like this is like a point blank sh- uh, rifle shot to Ellie. And I was like, Betsy just fucking yeah. killed her. But then I was like, Did it's lovely? Yeah, but then I was like, Did Mars shove her up with a gun? But I was like, No, because he's nowhere. He's nowhere there. He's not there. So he didn't do that, I don't think. I don't think he did either. And I do believe that she would have survived that blow to the chest. And it seemed to me that she was animated on her own, under her own power. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that she was a funny prop. Because that, that would go against the Mad Men Mars we know so far. He doesn't, like, use dead bodies as fun props he lets them let he lets them lie for the most part unless he brings them back to populate his his body basement but other than that he does just leave the bodies and he that seemed like a body that he would have left yeah now i want to go back and scene by scene that scene yeah right there's um a sense when that happens that betsy might not think that she was responsible for killing somebody because she doesn't seem to dwell on it too long, or maybe she doesn't feel like she has time. And she gathers up the kids, all five of them. There's literally only five children at this place, and then gets them onto a bus. The oldest teen uh, tries to help her close the door. And this actually uh, made me remember a time when even our OC Transpo buses had the manual, like the bus driver had to actually open the door because i had forgotten (laughs) that that was ever something that needed to be done (laughs) yeah yeah it reminded me very much the taking the school bus the country school bus that used to be like the longest school bus ride i ever had was a two-hour school bus ride back and forth and that involved like switching three different buses 
And so I, I spent a lot of time on school buses, especially ones like this where they had that cranking door closer thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was insane, too, because it took quite a bit of strength to actually open and close a door, especially when the bus was getting older. Mm-hmm. So it's it's weird to see these two people struggling with it and his weird here's weird paw claws or whatever is going on there. Sure, they're prosthetics, but like they're weird and big. Yeah, and he doesn't wear shoes either. Like he is rocking the big bare feet. Which is, it just lends itself to like, what is he? Was he always this weird half human bush yeti? He looked like a fucking yeti, Wes. Yeah, he really does. And I'm wondering, did he, did he like... When he was lynched and he died, did he come back as something more monstrous? Like, did a, the spirit of the woods change him into some sort of manifestation of uh, some kind of demon? Is he a wendigo? Like, what is happening? They zoom in on his hand. And aside from its weird claws and things like that and the hair that he has and the weird hobbit feet that he's got going on, there's a huge wound on one of his hands that looks, like for lack of a better term, zombified. Because it shows the bone and the sinew, but he shows no pain and it's not healing. It looks like dead flesh. Mm -hmm. So I think you're onto something with him being imbued with the forest spirit, wendigo, or something he's undead regardless yeah it's it's like was he was he basically cursed or punished for being an evil man and but then it's weird because it's like well it allows him to keep killing but like maybe he's in like horrible pain maybe he can feel himself decompose maybe um maybe there's something to he is a spirit, but he's only summoned when you call his name and, you know, whatever corpse is in the woods will reanimate just enough to give him mobility and form. I don't know. Like, it's really interesting. The body's in the basement because mm-hmm. we'll get there. But to jump there for a second, there are some of them that are quite old yes. and they're skeletal and not just skeletal but dried and old so this happened a very long time ago and when they're telling the story it seems to have happened a very long time ago he cannot be the same farmer mr mars in any way shape or form he's got to be sort of Voorhees ish where he spent you know a century in this forest yeah because that house and actually um that house itself looks like well over a hundred years old not like maybe it's not as dilapidated as something that's been abandoned that long but i mean there's no indication that this place really ever had power it probably doesn't have plumbing it like has this like it looks like an old uh like old turn of the century house that would be like a, a like a like this like a plantation farm or something like that just like this old fucking place with no modern amenities not even modern by like because he's lighting everything with candles and lanterns right he does he does and it looks like there is a wood fired water heater i believe now this house is got to be older than my grandmother's house, Mm -hmm. which it itself was over a century old when we lived in it. Mm -hmm. So this house definitely must be, it's got to be like 
late 1800s, if not early. My, um... Yeah, it's definitely, like, built before the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. My, um, mother and father's house, uh, in Carlton Place was, like, 135 years old, I think, when they were living in it. And that had a very similar, um, stairwell to this and also similar steps down to the basement i i just kept thinking i was like oh my god it looks like the house in carlton place oh my god and so i'm wondering if yeah it's in and around that age range the basement steps in particular the door to the basement too my grandmother's house had a very similar setup originally we moved the downstairs or the stairs to the the basement and created a whole different entrance where the wood chute used to be Mm-hmm. So we did like rejig that, mm-hmm. but it did initially have and sort of like this weird rickety half door that was like weird and, and very narrow. <laughs> so very, very similar build. And that reminded me a lot of, you know, the things that I love hillbilly horror for mm-hmm. is these old farmhouses. And it was so very dusty and grimy mm-hmm. and it's weird that Richie has the guts to go in that home alone and to sneak around the forest for so long. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell has Richie been doing all this fucking time? Well, we see in certain cut scenes, well, not cut scenes, but like scenes that cut to the farmhouse, we see Richie in the attic reading materials, I guess, like trying to get some information. He goes into the basement, sees something, and that's what gets him out of the house. But you, um, up in North Bay... You uh, always to- like uh, told a bunch of stories about going into like old abandoned houses in that area. The, I, I always think about the Scat Shack, but like the um, and other places like that. So, um, did you did you go into houses that were like this, like this level of dilapidated? Uh, only once, yes, definitely, and found all sorts of reading material, to be sure. <laughs> I, I've been in many other cottages that were like that, though. But uh, there was a, a place in a, in a uh, like, as it was a general store, I suppose, in this abandoned ghost town called Pacalci, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And there was all sorts of stuff like that. And it was very dilapidated. It was way more dangerous. This house, the Madman Mars Mansion is Mm -hmm. so much more safe because I don't think Richie had that sort of like, he wasn't testing the wood in front of him with a stick to make sure that he wasn't going to fall through it or anything. It was all pretty sturdy. And the things that he was reading weren't crumbling apart or moldy. So everything was well taken care of in this weird little house. So it, it definitely have been in places like that. And there were places I didn't go to. I didn't get a chance to go to this place, but in North Bay, there was a, fairly infamous ha- uh, haunted house it wasn't haunted it was just abandoned mm-hmm. that was in very good repair but it was in the middle of a swamp and oh. that was part of why it was probably abandoned um and it was called the piano shack because there was like three uh, upright or i don't think they were baby grands i think they were upright pianos wow. but there was like three of them in this house yeah so people would like go there and like brave the swamps and check out this abandoned house and there was all sorts of stuff in there and like Uh, photo albums and ledgers and all sorts of personal belongings that were still in this house so it reminded me quite a lot of this particular Uh, madman mars mansion do you know who has a piano in their fucking weird dilapidated house madman mars do you think he plays (laughs) 
Uh, he might have at one point, but his fingers probably got too swollen. He kept hitting like five keys at once. <laughs> the keys you're using are too fat. Please match the keyboard now to order our special piano playing wand. <laughs> um, did, I, I, I just got the sense. I was like, I bet his wife played. I bet his wife played. I think that's probably, maybe that's what they were going for or something like that. I don't know. But like the, the house definitely raises more questions because all this guy does is growl and, and hunch over and scurry about and kill people. And it doesn't seem like a person who like, and here's his piano. (laughs) It does very, it strikes me very much that it would be, his wife that played. That's a very wifely thing to do. Yeah. Or like maybe the house was inherited by his parents and grandparents. And maybe it was like, oh, that was grandma's piano. And he can never play. But like, you know, a piano is like 800 pounds. So what are you going to do with it? Just leave it in the corner. It's fine. Yeah, right. No, it's very true. Especially when they get out of tune and waterlogged like this one obviously was. Yeah. It was definitely not salvageable. So it might as well just sit there and be like a showpiece. When when Betsy gets the kids into the bus and drives forward, she sees Mars walking away with Ellie's now super dead body. And she decides that she has got to go see if everyone, if anyone else is alive. She is going to go to the house with her gun and her knife that she's had on her belt the whole time. And abandons the kids. This is definitely one of those things where I'm just like, you're away. You've gotten away. Like, he's given up. You're in a giant bus. He cannot get in. He's like, what are you... What are you doing? I know. And usually, of course, when it comes to, like, a final girl, so to speak, there's a reason why... They want to do this. They want to stop them forever mm-hmm. or they want to save their loved one. I don't think that she is convinced that TP is in there alive. Right. I don't think that's what her her driving force is. Mm-hmm. I don't think that she thinks she can stop him once and for all. Like he does seem like a formidable force and she's safe in a way with the children. Yeah. Which in theory should so why be her she top forfeits priority. her life. Yeah. Yeah, why she forfeits her life, it makes no... Particularly since, like, we alluded to this earlier, but this is not an extended stock and chase scene that we would be accustomed to. She gets to the farmhouse, Mars ambushes her, and, like, like slashes her face with his big gross claws, which I'm like, that's infected. But he cuts her down to the bone. <laughs> you see her the the, yeah. the bone in her cheek, and then he brings her ass downstairs and just immediately pit impales her on a meat hook. And with her last ounce of strength, she I guess stabs him in the shoulder with the knife that she had the whole time. And then the whole farmhouse goes up like he douses it in kerosene every night before he goes to sleep. And that's the end of that. Yeah, it's fucking mental. And then it's just in in this daze, Max pulls up against Richie wandering down the side of the road. And he's just like, Madman Mars, 
It was Madman Mars. He's real. And it's just like, you caused this, Richie. Yeah. You caused this. Yes, you helped with the undoing of it all at the end. Slightly. But yeah, it is was all your fault. And you did nothing to help these people that you might have been watching him kill them in the bush. Yeah. Because that's the distinct impression I got. <laughs> He's like, he's in on it. He's he wasn't like, traumatized until the place burned down. Yeah, maybe he's not traumatized by all the murder. He's just really scared of fire, like Frankenstein's monster. Very, very strange ending. And I did like, though, that last-ditch effort at stabbing him. Like, that's going to fucking do anything, really, honestly. Yeah, he does wince in pain, though, which, aside from the fact when they were, like, hitting his, his big rubbery paw in the in the bus it was really the only time that i ever got the it, this distinct impression was like that you could even hurt him because he seemed kind of like he didn't really give anyone that he got the drop on so many people that no one really had a chance to fight back but like in that sense i was like oh i guess it actually does hurt his hand sort of he does mm-hmm. uh but yeah no i was like oh he winced in pain when he got stabbed she might have just hit a really good spot <laughs> yeah and it ends with um with basically another weird, it's not a weird montage, but just this shot of like a, a silhouetted Mars wandering through the woods with an axe while that song plays. And th- you get the sense I'm like, so he is a spirit. He's not dead. Like it's, it's, it's again, it's very uh, mythical. Yeah, I had this like feeling that he's like tiny firefly and he could just like weather the the fire and live on in the forest. So maybe they were setting it up for a sequel at that point because sequels were the thing to do at that time in yeah. horror history. And I don't know if there would have been a Friday the 13th 2 for this to have pulled any sort of um, homage from because... Uh, that didn't come out till later in the year, and this came out at the very beginning oh, of yeah. 1981. So it would have just been things like Black Christmas and Friday the 13th, the first one, The Burning, uh, that was being filmed at the same time. So I don't know, other than not wanting to base something on it, if they were doing any sort of sharing or if they understood what the storylines were and what they were doing as far as... Um, the way that their killers were behaving or the kills themselves. So I don't know if they had any of that to draw on at all. It's hard to say, you know, so much of um, making movies and really making anything, as you well know, it's such an insular thing sometimes. Like sometimes people will think that you, you, uh, oh, you must've been watching this. You must've been reading this or like, were you inspired by that? I'm like, man you have no idea how you are just so up your own ass when you're really in creation mode that you're not paying attention to other things because i personally don't like to engage in too much stuff if i'm making something because i don't want it poisoning my brain for that very reason yeah yeah that makes sense i'm I'm writing or i'm writing a story called dark farm right now Mm -hmm. and it's uh i guess about a third of the way through the book and in draft and i'm certainly not reading anything like there's a a story a book i read a long time ago called dark 30 that has an all kind of similar aura as far as the way the farm is but i'm certainly not watching other farm 
type slasher sort of supernatural stories at all or drawing on that necessarily. And if I were to stop for a second and think about all of those or even Mad Men, uh, the, the farmhouse scenes and stuff like that and how that would relate to what I'm writing. Uh, I do even have those things to draw on, but I'm not. Because, yeah, you are up your own ass when you're <laughs> creating something. <laughs> and there may be some things that are directly influencing you at the get-go. But once the story starts really taking shape, it's its own thing entirely. So, yeah, yeah. they could have been even divorced entirely from what we're considering slasher classics mm -hmm. while they were creating this and totally doing it in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I wanted to say that the thing about slasher movies from what's considered to be the golden age of slashers, 1978 to 1984, is that most of the time those guys were seeing what was making the money and just kind of trying to do, well, let's just do something like that. And then they just made their own movies. They weren't really... It's only years later that, you know, thanks to movies like Scream or, and Hills Run Red and uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, that have cemented the idea of what, a, and of course, like the endless books on the subject, uh, yeah. would have cemented the idea of, of what a slasher is supposed to be. And so I think that in the case of Mad Men, we as a modern audience, you know, all these years later are going back and saying, okay, everyone says a slasher is this. How, let's see if this applies. And when the rules don't apply to a slasher in a way that we recognize, we're just like, oh, they were doing something very different. Oh, how unique. Oh, how this, how that. When you have to put yourself in the place of the filmmakers at the time, they weren't thinking about how do we contribute to the golden age of slashers and how do we conform to these <laughs> things? They, they weren't, they were just trying to make a movie. I heard someone complain recently about um, vampire films mm -hmm. and how they wish that they would all conform to the same rules because they don't like when a vampire in this one can do this and a vampire in that one can do that. And yeah. I was like, that is the spice of life. That is what, like, you don't want them to all follow. If, if every zombie movie followed Romero rules, we'd be so bored with them. And sure, there's people that are very bored with them already mm -hmm. or have been bored with them in waves. Um, but mm -hmm. if they all follow the same rules, it would just be formulaic crap. And yeah, doing that thing where they're following the money and just recreating something because they want to ride someone else's coattails. Mm -hmm. And it's very refreshing to find things like this or things like pieces or things like even the first Friday the 13th. They weren't trying to, uh, they were trying to make money and they were following a formula, but at the same time, there weren't enough formulas to follow. Yeah. So they still ended up being pioneers and doing their own thing. Yeah. Even in the face of wanting to just make money and make a slasher film, so to speak. They yeah. were like sort of the pioneers of that. But at the same time, they had nothing to follow. There were no yeah. Romero rules. There were no Dracula's faults or whatever mm -hmm. to follow as yeah. far as what has now become the tropes. Yeah, I think um, I know that you had recently watched. Well, I recently watched. I know that you'd already seen it. That uh, documentary about horror movies from the 1980s that just got released on Shudder. Uh, what was it called? Something Darkness? 
Yeah, Chris had bought it uh, when it first came out, and we had a great time because we really seemed to like those those four hour epic documentaries on horror yes, yes, and it's yes. very rewatchable. So we'll definitely be tuning into it again. Yeah. I liked it. But um, I, I bring it up only to mention the fact that I think why people look back in the 1980s for horror so fondly is people were just trying stuff. They're just like, I don't know. Let's do a movie. Let, let's see what happens. It, they weren't so concerned because there wasn't this, idea of script by committee there wasn't this idea of like these 12 elements worked in this movie so let's just do that there i mean there was but at the same time there was a lot of people that are just like let's just try it see what happens let's just try it see what happens yeah i want to make a movie here's my low budget my no budget production company let's go try something whereas and and i think that what i bristle at with um this uh, I know you had recently had a whole conversation with this with uh, uh, Amy uh, Jane Vosper on your uh, Typical Books podcast, uh, nearly two hour conversation, mm-hmm. which I listened to all of because it's available on Spotify, the audio only versions, which is helpful for me at work. Um, <laughs> it is. I, I, what I bristle at with the whole idea of like, it's modern, but let's make it the 80s is because I feel like they're. Now filmmakers are tapping into this idea that to make something, wasn't it better back in the 80s? Wasn't horror better back in the 80s? But I was like, you are doing something so modern, which is you are playing it so safe by relying on the fact, relying on pioneers of horror who were just trying to make a movie. So maybe if more people just tried to make a movie, we would stop looking back on previous decades as, well, it's never getting better than that. It's never getting better than that. And stop poo-pooing everything that's modern. And I know I'm the last person that should say that because I basically wish, like, the year never rolled to 1996. But, like, I um, I, I definitely feel that by trying to make an 80s slasher in the modern era, you really are no better than, like, a, a Blumhouse production cycle. That's just like, here's your divorced parents and a peanut butter eating kid and a ghost that looks like what every other ghost looks like in the closet. And there's your fucking movie. Um, I think that like people should, they've taken the wrong lessons from the movies from the 1980s is what I'm saying. They definitely have. I heard someone complaining recently about uh, using CG effects and we've heard this uh, conversation ad nauseum as horror fans the people who don't like cg effects the people that like practical Mm -hmm. effects and whether we sit on one line or the other we can appreciate both people's stances and there is a place for for both things but it's when you sort of cross a line with me when you say that we ought to have stopped making movies after like the thing because that was the be all end all of practical effects and Mm -hmm. physical effects and Mm -hmm. and good horror gore Mm -hmm. and it's like whoa have you seen a movie since then sir like have you only watched marvel movies and that's what you're comparing these two things together or something because you look at people who look back to these classics of practical amazing gushy horror gore effects in Mm -hmm. fast-paced films like the thing or even madman like things that have great gushy gore that are all practical because they had to be or if they're in camera, you know, then you get the void. 
how could you get any more insane that terrifier mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much cg is in terrifier but i don't think there's any like i'm not a, a pro when it comes to that but there are some really mm-hmm. great effects in bone tomahawk like all bone those tomahawk, things yeah. reached back yeah they reached back to these old films and they didn't recreate them and with an no. 80s vibe they didn't go and find their foam ended over the ear headphones and their walk mates to make this movie authentic 80s yeah. they did their own fucking thing but they you can tell where their influences lie mm-hmm. and that's the difference in in pulling out your real love of this genre from somewhere and making it your own and doing something sure your head is up your ass while you're doing it but you're creating something as iconic as these new classics like the void but then there's people out there that are going to poo poo it because it's not from 1981 that's that's a shame i completely agree i really really do i think that um uh, i think what i love about movies from the, the the bygone era is not that i necessarily think that they're better than modern movies i think what i like about it is the honesty of just people trying to make a movie we're just trying to make a movie here folks that's all we're trying to do as opposed to trying to adhere to a formula and or or, or opposed to winking at the camera being like ah 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 don't you miss your walkman like it's 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 just like ironically a lot more honest to me and and um i guess that's really the only point i was trying to make and i think that like what can be baffling to people about madman and even the burning because these are both like final boy movies technically and um you know like sometimes in our endless attempt to intellectualize things that can't necessarily be intellectualized uh we can somehow end up shooting ourselves in the foot because for years and years you're going to be like well a slasher is this a slasher is this it has to be this and this is what it looks like and when we make slashes now it has to look like it's from the 1980s and if it's not then it's not a real slasher and this that and the other thing or like slashers can only be good if they were made in 1978 or uh, to 1984 and then any other slasher that is a fake slasher um i think we're doing ourselves a massive disservice and to stop trying to like categorize upon categorize upon categorize something. Didn't mean to get into a whole lot yeah, there. Definitely. <laughs> no, and it's why films that deal with um, women not being like not having the comeuppance at the end or men having weaknesses, they sort of get lost somehow in mm-hmm. this. Like I'm thinking of uh, Blood Rage. Blood and Rage, I'm thinking yeah. of The Burning. The Burning, yeah. Yeah, like they're all. Yeah having to do with something uncomfortable about male strength in a lot of times and they don't fit that mold of like Mm -hmm. a crazed madman chasing scantily clad woman through the forest and she ends up coming out on top somehow and not in a sexy way (laughs) yeah yeah in a bloody way her rebirth and that whole carol clover thing you're totally right because like it is it is those slasher movies that don't fit that narrative that we've created over the decades that tend to get lost in the shuffle like madman i think my favorite thing about madman is that opening scene not just the song the song is one thing but it's that image that um that picture of like the forest and it's parting at a glade and then we get that crazy 
sting of synthetic sound and then yeah. Mad Mad in the most amazing font ever known to man. Mm-hmm. That is very good. That says 80s slasher horror to me like nothing else. Totally. So, do we know what we got next for them or is it we just still flying by the seat of our pants? We are flying by the seat of our pants. I don't know what we're going to do. I kind of like this uh, back to the splatter pictures roots kind of vibe. So if we can think of something else, it's kind of summary. We were talking about going back into some Stephen King of Palooza before summer ends. We're going to be going back to school. So we're tossing around some titles there. So I don't know. We'll let you know. Uh, maybe on the social medias. Now that we're back, people will probably start trickling back to pay attention when we're talking about Splatter Pictures Dead Air. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Uh, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.